Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Hello and welcome to The Big Interview. I'm Graham Hunter. My guest today is Scott Gemmell. We met in Derby where Scott's father, Archie, won two league titles. Yes, stop. If you're not old enough, I do mean, effectively, the Premier League. Derby won the Premier League twice. Brian Clough was the manager. Archie Gemmell was one of several exceptional footballers there. And after having conquered England, Archie Gemmell took the risk of following Brian Clough to Nottingham Forest, down a division, being promoted, and then becoming champions of England again and champions of Europe. So therefore, when we sit down with Scott Gemmell, Archie's son, why wouldn't we try and draw proper analysis of those two unusual, idiosyncratic football men from him? This is an episode where Scott, who's had a brilliant career of his own, who's now a successful coach of Scotland's under-21 side. Scott analyses both Brian Clough and his father, Archie. There are short spaces where, I'm not sure if you'll detect this, but having been there, I can tell you, Scott gets emotional. He's not used to talking about his father in the way that he did with us. He found it therapeutic. See if you can catch the moments when it's evident that Scott is lost in his own thoughts, still speaking and answering our questions. And a big picture emerges of both Brian Clough, with whom a young, a very young Scott Gemmell was allowed to sit on the bench at Nottingham Forest. And a picture emerges also of a very disciplinarian father, Archie, who was a brilliant footballer, just as Scott became, but in a very different way. How did they get on? How did Archie form Scott? Where did they fall out? Well, this is all covered in the big interview with Scott Gemmell. Scott Gemmell, welcome to the big interview. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us, even with not reservations, but a slightly quizzical look about what the hell this is all about so thank you for trusting us yep that you see listener that was a, that was a very Clint Eastwood yep okay let's see how this goes Scott we we first met much to my surprise when I can't remember I think you messaged me or I, I did quite yeah quite remember yeah I was like this is Scott Gemmell he's in Barcelona I'm really impressed we went out sat in a hotel reception chatted over a book couple of cups of coffee and it turned out that you were living opposite my old flat in Barcelona and we're going to come to all of that but it was genuinely exciting 
uh, for me because I love people of talent and achievement who, who want to experiment and, and risk and, and develop, which is you. And it's also what you're doing to people around you in your job um, as currently Scotland Under 21 coach. But having established that you're an interesting guy and that you had a very successful playing career, one of which we're all jealous. I want to start with formation. I want to start because I think you're an intelligent and reflective man. And not un- undoubtedly, you'll have grown up amongst many big influences. But for somebody of my generation, uh, your father was an exceptional footballer. I'm old enough to have remembered seeing him and people like, McFarlane and Todd and eventually Charlie George and Hector and and whatever, winning titles in England. I mean, let's say that nice and slow for the youngsters out there because they're allowed in, they're allowed in. Derby won the title a couple of times in the early 70s on the single muddiest ground where professional football has ever been played, the baseball ground. You couldn't play baseball there, that's for sure. (laughs) And he went on to do something that, uh, again, marked my understanding of football, my, my development of concepts of what football was like by being part of a Forest team that comes up from Division 2, wins Division 1. I mean, again, unheard of, impossible these days. And then won the European Cup. If you're growing up with a father of that type and then you begin to get to know one of his mentors, uh, Brian Clough, I want to start by asking you, Scott, what... As a youngster, at various different ages of your development, because we're talking about you six, seven, or around that, when you must have become conscious of what your dad was achieving, and, and it was big things. By the time you were six and seven, he was just moving from Derby, possibly, I'm not sure if you remember him winning the second title with Derby, but he moves to Forest and achieves this. What, as a, as, a, as a father, as a guide, as somebody who's developing a football son, what was it like being Archie's son? Great question. There's definitely different stages to, to that, as you've just alluded to. Um, the real early childhood was just complete hero worship and supporting, obviously, the team that he was playing for. And memories, um, that just that recognition that he was a very famous player, a very successful player. Obviously, Derby's not that big a place, so... Everybody knew him, knew the family. So that, that, of course, you start to become aware of that from an early age. You know, I can school assemblies and those kinds of things where your dad all of a sudden is on stage presenting prizes or something and I didn't even know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but also the normality of it as well. You know, I, I've answered the question many a time in my playing career I don't know what it's like not to have a famous father, so it felt completely normal. Um, and I stand by that now as a 50-year-old man. It definitely does feel normal, and I obviously wouldn't have changed it for anything. Um, but as you start to get older, and then you start to think about my own football development, you know, that, that grassroots football period of playing on a Sunday with my friends... It was, I was protected from it. I think there must have been things going on behind the scenes that I was protected from, just in terms, of course, I wanted to be a footballer. Um, my, my dad was, of course, aware of that, but I wasn't, in my opinion, 
and I'm not being humble here. I wasn't good enough at that age. I definitely was a late developer in terms of physicality and um, strength. I don't think I ever got it, to be honest. Uh, the speed either, obviously. Um, but I think the point I'm trying to make was I got my opportunity to, to become a professional footballer. I actually stayed on at school, did an extra year of exams. And I thought it was because of the educational side. But when I look back, I think it was probably I needed that extra year to have any chance of be, being a footballer. I think if I'd gone to a club at that stage, I wouldn't have survived. I, I was too far behind physically, immature. Um, and I just couldn't quite, I wouldn't have been able to, to really make, have an impression. The good thing is, and hopefully you'll be interested to hear this part of the story is, Brian Clough was a big part of that. Like, and Brian Clough famously tells the, or told the story where he knew me from when I was in my mum's tummy. Uh, like he, he went to sign my dad when my dad was a Preston player and wanted to sign him for Derby. And he went to his house in Lytham St Anne's. My mum was pregnant with me. And Brian Clough tried to influence my dad to sign for Derby. My dad said, I need to sleep on it. And Brian Clough said, OK, that's fine, son. I'll be here in the morning. And he slept on the sofa and he refused to leave. And you know, my dad went to sign for Derby the next day and obviously went on to have great success. But, you know, Brian, Brian Clough never let me forget that that he knew me from that period. There was a sort of connection. And that he saw me grow up. Um, but in my opinion, the interesting part of the story is at the age of like 14, 15, 16, I started to play for a Sunday team in Derby called AC Hunters. And uh, AC Hunters was um, Simon Clough's team. It was Nigel's brother's team. And Nigel was playing for Forrest at the time. Nigel would be the linesman on a Sunday. Brian Clough came to watch all the games. And, uh, you know, it's incredible to think back now. But that, that team that played in the league, in the pub league on a Sunday in Derby, wore the full Forest kit, you know, that came directly from the city ground, was laundered at the city ground. And again, it's so hard to think of it now. I can, there, were play, there were Forest players who played in that team every week. And I famously, I can remember, Gary Charles made he, the, the right-back for Forrest, yeah. who went on to have a very good career, played for England. Yeah. He made his England under-21 debut in the midweek. And on the Sunday morning, he was playing for AC Hunters with me. And obviously that is hard to digest now, but believe me, it happened. Um, and I played every... I was, so I was still at school, but I was playing in this team on a Sunday and I loved it. And Simon was amazing. He used to pick me up, take me to training. I think he even fed me because <laughs> he, he was worried about how skinny I was. Um, but so Brian Clough saw me play every Sunday in that environment. And then I was, I was lucky to get the apprenticeship at Forest, but I'd already missed the first year because I stayed on at school. Again, I, I'm completely honest and I don't mind admitting, I don't think I would have got that opportunity if it hadn't been for my dad and my surname and the, the connections, obviously. My dad was working at the club at the time. And of course, I like to think I took the opportunity and I did go on to play for Forrest, but there's no doubt in my mind that that opportunity wouldn't have been given in a normal circumstances because of how far behind I was 
in terms of strength and just that late development. You're, t- you're a, I think it's a fair word to use for somebody who's a coach rather than just a manager. You're a teacher now. You, you have to teach um, your pupils in very short spaces of time when you get international uh, windows. Therefore, as somebody who's studied the art of coaching and teaching and, and how to impart knowledge, but also how to, we're going to come on to it later, I think you're somebody who likes to potentially influence individuals and help them develop, look at them, talk to them, work with them. When you, again, look back at those two men, I, I, and already you've mentioned Simon, I'm, I'm fully aware that there'll be two as part of a very big ambit of people who influenced you. But they're interesting people, people of merit, your dad and, and Brian, time too. When you look back, where were the instances of them directly influencing you or advising you and stepping in and being front foot and do do this, don't do that, whether it's rouse, whether it's humour, whether mm. it's encouragement? And where are the other side, where, what occurs to you is the other side of learning? which is you learn yeah. subconsciously yeah. and you pick things up that stay with you for life, whether, in, whether as in career or, or just as yeah. a grown man. No, 100%. And there are certain memories I have that really stick with me. And I can remember going, again, that period of like 13, 14, 15. My dad was coaching at Forest and I used to go with him to games all the time after school and just really game after game, watching the games. And there wasn't a lot of conversation between my dad and myself about the details of the game, but but the important bits. And also little things like the, the apprentices at Forest used to sit in between, just next to the dugouts on the track. And, you know, there, there was times where Mr Clough would be walking to the to the, the forest bench and he would see me and he would tell me to come and sit with him and I would be sitting on the forest bench as a schoolboy. You know, I wasn't an apprentice at that time. I was only sitting there because of who my dad was. And just getting to, to see how he watched the games and his communication to the players, the things he focused on, there's no doubt in my mind those things were influencing me and then of course the actual football side of things and playing I can remember playing for my team on a Sunday morning literally a you know a a proper kids game under 14 under 15 and I went to take a throw in on uh, at the side of the pitch obviously my dad was standing with the dog and I took the throw in and he called me over to him like 10 yards away at the side of the pitch and the game's live, it's going on and he told me to stand next to him and I wasn't sure what was going on but he was fuming, he was furious and he literally said, you may as well stand with me because you're doing fuck all on the pitch and you know, just that kind of indirect influencing um, and being able to obviously make his point without actually going into great detail. Like the game was literally going on and he was nothing to do with the team. And he, the, the, he made his point, you know. It's they did an old-fashioned way to make a point. They, did, they, didn't, they didn't 
he, you know, little things like that, and just he always about the physicality of the game. I could always pass, and I feel the reason I played at the top level was my my brain, my football intelligence. I wasn't strong, I wasn't fast, but I could play with the very best players because of my brain and my technical ability. And but a big thing growing up was just about tackling and competing, and that that having that mentality and you know how as a young player and I I see it now as a coach that's that's the bit it doesn't matter how good you are technically or physically Mm -hmm. if you haven't got the correct mentality then you're wasting your time what was being taught to you about tackling then or asked of you like learning how not not to have to tackle because the touch is good and the distribution is good what was being taught to me was playing as if you mean it about playing as if your life depends on it playing as if it's the last game you're ever going to play. That real level of commitment that the top players have, that was, that's what was being taught to me. So it's in there because it developed and you had a top-level career, but it wasn't innate? No, I obviously was a very different player to him. Um, he's, my dad was very physical, very fast, very competitive, very aggressive... Very Scottish. Yeah. Um, given I, my age, and he, I'd have to say I recognise a lot of Scottish characteristics yeah, in his play. Yeah. As good as he was, yeah. which he was. But I think it took him a long time to realise that I was a different type of player that I could... And eventually, he loved how I influenced games, mm. but he recognised it wasn't the same way he did. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's that mentality thing, it's that... Intent to play as if you mean it. So, I what think. was football for you at that stage? In comparison, more about fun. Let's see what I can do today. Let's see how this goes. I mean, I'm just using words yeah. that might seem really clumsy, but in, compared no. to what he wanted to imbue no. in you. Well, that that's a good point. It, in my eyes, I was just a, a kid playing football with his friends, with aspiration to be a footballer. Mm. He knew the serious side of the game and how hard it was to become a footballer. And he probably had that parental anxiety of how am I going to help my son become a footballer and how do I protect my son from the disappointment of not becoming a footballer and all the things that go with that. So there would have been a lot going on for him, for sure. And also then add into the fact he was a famous player. Was that something to do with it in terms of how... The, ex- the perception of everything that goes with that. Toffee then, close to him, being close to him, I want to be careful because I'd imagine how his latter career goes is a subject of some emotion for you. But while you're around him as an impressionable young guy, what, what are you hearing and seeing? Because the anecdotes have now boiled down mm. a man of great achievement yeah. because what he was able to do firstly as a footballer I wasn't old enough to see him scoring all those goals but apparently a superb goal scorer until injury robbed him of what he should have been able to do but if you think particularly of what he achieved at, at Derby and Nottingham Forest it's, it's, it's extraordinary and people now tell the anecdotes what did you think of him was he intimidating? I don't think so no was he prone to dishing out advice? Yeah, he, 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 was, he was a huge influence on the person, not just the player. For me, the biggest compliment 
I can give him it, was, and it I'm stealing it actually it was Martin O'Neill who I heard say it and out of all the ex-players that have played for Brian Clough I feel Martin really captured it it was actually a tribute after he'd passed away after Brian Clough had passed away Martin said that his players wanted to play for him and for me that is the the X factor you know people say what what is Brian Clough's X factor what is Sir Alex Ferguson's X factor I didn't play for Sir Alex Ferguson but I was lucky enough to play for for Brian Clough and for me that really captured it his players wanted to play for him and you know how as the manager the the head coach how do you create that kind of environment and it's through huge influence not only on the training grounds on the match day but it's in the player's life it's in their family it's it's everything Um, and you Brian Clough would influence how the young players spoke and pronounced their words and cut their hair but it was done for the right reasons he was trying to prepare them for for their whole life these were standards yeah standards exactly that yeah Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. When I first met you, we went and sat in the, the town bus and I said, let's have a drink. You, I think you said, I don't drink. No, I don't. And you've never drunk. No. Was anything about how he was living latterly an influence for you in that, seeing the, what the pressure of football can lead you to do? No, it wasn't. It was purely my own father. I'm guessing now. I haven't gone into this in any depth. But when I was at that age where most people begin drinking, I was really just never given the opportunity. I was, I couldn't bear to think about the punishment. You know, it just, so I was, it was just too strict. There was because no Because you wouldn't have wanted to let your parents down or they were super strict parents? Just pure old-fashioned fear of my father. And, but then it obviously reached a point where I just wasn't interested and then I started to play football. Um, then I'm sure, you know, 
there were moments of peer pressure, moment, even not only at junior level, even at senior level, but luckily I developed a mentality where I wasn't influenced by that. Well, I need to give you a compliment now. I spoke to Don Hutchinson last night, fellow guest on this series. Don immediately said, great guy, please say hello, model pro, brilliant football brain. Those were his, just his, his, his quick, immediate comments. Thank you. We need to talk about football brains. But um, we have sponsors. Um, Bet365 asked us to ask you, you can choose. One's a variation of what we've just been talking about. Was it like playing under Brian Clough? Mm. Playing. Or who was the best player you've played against? Well, let me see if I can quickly answer both. Play, playing for Brian Clough, it, it stayed with me. You know, the, the things that I learned... The simplicity, the clarity of message has really almost come to the fore now that I'm coaching. Um, As a player, it was the principles and the standards like you've referred to and and also the other players in the team, the the demand from them um, because they obviously had worked with him longer and when a young player got an opportunity to go into the team and training with the team on a day-to-day basis, you know, the whole package just really influenced you as a player. But there was, Forrest, there was no written down game model or philosophy and there wasn't a lot of tactical preparation. But there was a way of playing. You know, it was learned, it was just learned through game-related, through games and literally the team sheet would go up. You'd come back from training on a Friday after training. You'd walk down the river, train, come back 12, half 12 on a Friday and the team would be pinned on the boards 1 to 11 and you knew what position you were playing on what number strip you were wearing. If you were playing, if you were 7, you were playing on the right. If you were 11, you are playing on the left. The players knew how to play. And the, going back to my point, it, it, in my opinion... The genius was in the clarity and the, the, the simplicity. And I th- now that I'm coaching, that's something I'm very conscious of, very aware of, and the power of it. I'm, I'm intrigued and I like linking our interview. So not that long ago, a few weeks ago, we sat down for a, a brilliant and long chat with Michael Lauder, who's t- and we asked him actually about working with Cruyff, because Cruyff was... Um, there are similarities with Clough in that he was different things to different people. He could be tremendously difficult, as Brian could, depending on what your relationship was with him. Martin and Ayla was with him a week ago. Martin was bumped out of the club to Norwich because he disobeyed. Mm. And Martin talked about Larry Lloyd not wearing a blazer. and that, So the standards... And Michael had his ups and downs with Johan Cruyff, but he said something that links exactly what you're talking about, Brian Clough. And he said um, the instructions were really short. They were really short, they were simple, they were giving you with clarity and insistence, and that was it. Yeah. And I asked him a supplementary, and he said, well, yeah, if, if you wanted to know why, and you went and talked to him, he would explain to you. But the, Because I think from the, from the outsider's point of view, certainly from me, from those who are listening, the idea that genius is, and let's call Clough a genius, I think that he deserves that, Cruyff certainly was, the idea is that what you're getting is genius instruction. You're being, op- you're being opened up into a sort of Beethoven masterclass about mm. what a symphony is. Whereas the reality seems to be all the genius is up here and the clear, concise information said with emphasis is to make those who maybe aren't geniuses play in a certain way and perform in a certain way. Yeah. So something that I've started to think about a lot is 
I obviously got to play for Brian Clough at the end of his managerial career. And by that time, he had the presence, he had the success. You know, he, he was able to influence because of who he was and the respect that his players had for him. I would love to, to have seen how he did it before the mm-hmm. success, you know, and how how closely his management style related to that and his ability to influence players. Of course, it's easy to influence players when you've won the trophies he'd won. By the time I got to work with him, if he said something, you listened, of course you did. I would love to see how his personality was and the way he influenced his teams and players at the beginning of his managerial career before he'd had that success because obviously, in my opinion, it's, it's harder to do that. You have to, to really... How do you find a way to, to influence the players? Of course, at that period of his managerial career, he, he possibly wasn't working with international players that he went on to work with. But that's the bit that I would love the to economy, see. Even though they, they weren't... Let's, let's pick it... Derby wasn't his first club. The Derby's where he first wins big titles. So... <clears throat> let's agree that maybe some of them weren't massive international stars, but some of them were already internationals. And let's agree that what was proven over the time was that they were gigantic characters, your father included, but he would be representative of a squad where they were hard men. They wouldn't have taken being pushed around or ordered around by somebody that, that didn't gain their respect. Yeah. In fact, they'd have rebelled um, without any question. About it. Dave Mackay, for example. I mean, let's, let's not mess around. So... You know, Klopp must have had something, and it what it what it feels to me like is I grew up with him, knowing him as a Scot, not living in England. I grew up with him first as a TV personality, mm. on the very first football panels, given opinions that were pungent and seemed arrogant, with that slightly nasal voice, that delivery that Mike Yarwood made famous because he imitated it, whatever. And I wonder if there must have been a lot of toe to toe, nose to nose cock of the walk not bullying but like you'll do what I say or, or, or he was more articulate than your average footballer extremely articulate quick cutting humorous extravagant in some of his thoughts and gestures I think it must if, or it feels to me and I'm wondering if you recognise the mix it must have been a mixture of like uh, brute force um, alpha male yeah excellent idios- idiosyncrasy and, and, and a wit to be able to see the clashes coming and, and be smarter probably on another level than these strong character players. Yeah, I agree. The, the description you've just given fits with how he spoke to his players, how he influenced his players. You know, he would, he would literally speak to a, a central defender who he'd put in the team to be physical and head the ball because that was the profile that he wanted he would literally say, son, you are not a good player. When you've got the ball, pass it to him because he's a good player. <laughs> and everybody finds that funny, of course, but, and his delivery, his way to influence, but he was getting his point across and the description you just had is exactly how he influenced his players, in my opinion. I'd imagine you were... Uh it's been a blessing to see him even at the latter stages of his career and you were going to have a shot at the best player which is a much simpler question yeah best player to play against well um, obviously I was very lucky to play in the Premier League in that period where (laughs) Vieira and Petit were playing for Arsenal 
Keane and Scholes were playing for Manchester United. You shared United. some training pitch time with Keane. Yeah, Roy was at Forest, yeah, at, at the start of his career. Uh, I, would, I would probably say Roy. Roy, Roy went on to, to really have an incredible career, the way he influenced games, um, the way he controlled games. So I would probably say Roy. We could do an entire episode on Roy, but for, the, for today, let's not. Um, and I want anybody who's, who's tuned in to think that we don't appreciate what you um, achieved, um, maybe most particularly at, at Forest and Everton, but Scotland too. But I said at the beginning that we met because you went to wander the earth and, and, and develop. The yeah. Barcelona trip was yeah. for one particular reason, but until recently I didn't know that you decided and, and that your wife would signed off on, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> mm. I mean, I, I've, I've set myself up here, you know, I suppose nobody's going to be pissed off. So let's go to Manhattan and spend a few months in yeah, Manhattan. Yeah, that was an easy... I've, I've done myself in a little bit easy-ish, but a lot of people don't like change of culture. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't like being far away from their homeland or from the, from their family. Um, Manhattan is... Uh, New York is quite an unforgiving, hard-nosed place. It's not necessarily vastly easy to make friends quickly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a survival of the fittest city. Have I made any? Have I made any of this up? Did you go to New York? Did you go there just to live life, the best life you could, in terms of I don't know, culture and leisure, and have a bit of fun? Yeah, that, I think that would be accurate. I I went to New York during my playing career. I used to go every summer. I just holidays yeah, on holiday. Yeah, I loved it. I was lucky to have the opportunity to just go and rent an apartment and. Tick that box, scratch that Whereabouts? Itch. Whereabouts, vaguely, I mean, not the address. Yeah, but. down... Well, actually, the, the rental company said it was in Tribeca, but, <laughs> but it, 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 believe me, it wasn't in Tribeca. It was just across the... In that, more in Riverside. That's realtors for you everywhere, yeah, right? I definitely fell for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but lower... Describe it. Brownstone? No, a proper big apartment building uh, uh, with kind of, uh, again, very spoiled with... Uh, Dorman, that kind of thing. I just loved New York. I, I New York in all seasons. I'd only experienced New York in summertime, in kind of early summer, late spring, gets, because of going cold. going after the football. But yeah, of course, going, being in New York, Christmas, snow, seeing the city shut down, all those things like that. it was just like being in a film. So, what did New York life consist of? Galleries, museums, not tourist stuff. Uh, because I'd obviously done all that previously. I just I wanted to explore New York more. I was really serious about it. I wasn't sure if I wanted to move across. Just re- so a little bit of kind of looking for properties um, to see. And a little bit of football. I can remember catching the train out to 20, 30 minutes outside Manhattan towards the airport, going to watch a grassroots kind of team thinking I want, kind of wanted to see the facilities, the, the standard of the coaching. Obviously, they didn't know I was there. I literally just turned up, did a bit of digging on the internet, went and watched them train, and then just wanted to see the level. But mainly, yeah, mainly I was just eating, running, keeping fit, and, yeah, going to galleries and concerts and things like that. We'll fade out of New York with you. Have you got a favourite gig? Wow, concert-wise, I have been spoiled, believe me. Go on. Um, you love your music. I do love music, and I didn't go out drinking when I was younger, but I went to a lot of concerts, and I loved seeing the bands, and I, hopefully I can tell you some great stories. I can remember having a weekend off 
I think we'd been knocked out the cup and I'm a big I was a big Verve fan still am but obviously Ashcroft's the man Richard Ashcroft the lead singer but he was playing the Verve had split up and I found one of my friends told me Ashcroft was playing Friday night in Milan Saturday in Bologna and I think it must have been Sunday he was playing in Rome and we had no tickets or anything and we did the lot we flew to Milan bought tickets off a tout went in watched watched him play in Milan and then got the train to Bologna the next day same got some tickets off the touts went to see him play in Bologna and on the next day he was playing in Rome we were flying from Bologna to Rome on a little obviously domestic plane and we walked in to the airport and Ashcroft was on our flight from Bologna to Rome with his wife and his kids and his guitar tech because the, the concert in Rome was an acoustic concert with just him basically but, but Bologna hadn't been no Bologna was with, with drums and everything um, but not the band it was just Richard Ashcroft and all my friends were obviously saying you need to go and speak to him you need I, would, I didn't and I regret it I would love I should have gone and you said did it out of, because of your personality which is a little bit you said yeah, reasonably reserved but also the, you, you grew up in a very rule oriented situation both in club and yeah. family so. he was with his wife and his kids so thought, yeah, I won't yeah. be that guy I won't be yeah, rude a bit of both yeah definitely whereas given that he's a mad football fan and a United fan he'd have known you immediately I'm sure he'd have been delighted but you Possibly. do, you sure. do regret it yeah, I should have gone and said hello for sure. We'd made a big effort. We were huge fans of him. I, I'm guessing it must have been before mobile phones. Otherwise, my friends would have been asking to have pictures taken with him. Better days, those. And he's really had a resurgence recently. In fact, a football agent, Steve Cutner, uh, was, was representing him and helped broker the deal between him and Stone's management for the sample yeah. they took from Lou Goldham. Yeah. And so there's a football part of Ashcroft's story too. And I remember when he began to tour again and he started in Brazil and Rio and the, the crowds were like 50,000, 60,000 in stadiums for him. And he's a, he's a man of some talent. Although, you know, I don't think he's is he as commercial in, in music sales now as he mm, was. I'm not sure. Uh, I should mention Oasis as well, like... I can remember going to see Oasis in Derby, literally across the road from where we are now. In and they played to literally, you know, under fifty people. You know, we're talking twenty, thirty people in a room. And I'd actually been to the record shop in Derby on the day, and the guy knew me, and he used to say, "You need to listen to this. You need to listen to this." And he, it was the time, the week when Supersonic, the first single, was released. And he said, they're playing in Derby tonight, you should go and see them. So we went, and I'm not kidding. Oasis played that concert to 20, 30 people in Derby as if it was 100,000 people. They were unbelievable, you know. The, they were so good. If I could have bought the band that night, I would. And they were amazing. And I can remember going to work the next day and... Going into the dress room. Going to work means uh, going back go, to, going uh, to... Going to Forest. Forest still. Going to Forest the next day, going into the dressing room and saying, I saw a band last night and they're going to rule the world. And everyone's like, what are they called? And I'm like, Oasis. And they're like, shut <laughs> up. What, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm like, believe me, they were. Well, if you could bottle up the description of what you saw that night, what was it? Well, 
musically they were absolutely they were on it on it really? slick like just really absolutely so impressive but but they also had the presence the attitude the belief Liam Gallagher stood on that stage in front of 20 30 people as if he was playing to 100,000 people they in my opinion they knew what was what was going to happen and the, the literally the van was parked outside and after the concert Liam Gallagher was in the the kind of alleyway putting on this full length leather jacket as if he was he knew he was going to be a superstar um, and me and my friends walking out kind of telling him you know you are going to be a superstar um, it was because the story gets badly told which urban legends often are that somebody put you in touch with McGee and McGee put you in touch with Oasis which maybe happened later but have you gone on to explain to any of them or did you go on because they're now not playing, not speaking, or whatever they're doing. Hmm. Did you go on and explain to them that you'd been there? No, I didn't. I actually, I invited that when Scotland qualified for the France 98 World Cup, and obviously the first game was against Brazil, I invited Alan as my guest, um, but he couldn't go, but he asked for the if we could give the tickets to Primal Scream, which I did, um, and that, that was obviously a big thrill for me too, to be able to invite somebody like Primal Scream to the concert but that's how I, I met Alan and um, I got introduced to him backstage at uh, the big Oasis concert was it Nebworth? Nebworth was it yeah um, Scream compared to Oasis what, what impact have they made on you? yeah absolutely massive you know their music's amazing and I love love that period of of going to watch them and obviously the history of Bobby Gillespie being in Jesus and the Mary Chain. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at ACAST, and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.